Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I want, I want to talk about the cop scene, like, real briefly, because I think it's a real interesting scene. But let's get into Darla. Yeah. Well, actually, that might be a good way into it. So, so with the kidnapped Jenny, Darla goes off to pick up the food before going back to the house, and that's where we run into the cops. So you wanted to talk about this cop scene. Yeah, not least of which because uh, the – well, Darla's picking up the food – and, you know, Jenny is making a ruckus in the trunk. And the fast food guy says to her, hey, what's in the trunk? She's like, wouldn't you like to know? You want to see? And he's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, sure. And he's like, no, I'll get in trouble. And she just literally goes to the back of the, the, the car. And, and the trunk is already open, which I think was a mistake on, on the part of the filmmakers. But Yeah, uh, yeah I, thought, I thought the same thing. <laughs> But she she starts talking to Jenny and she's like, stop it, you know, um, and then we see the cops uh, in their car. And um, the one cop is actually played by Deborah McMichael, who was Deborah in the WWF, wife of Stone Cold Steve Austin, which I find hilarious that she just Amazing. randomly pops up in this. Uh, but she says to the cop, I, I guess the cop is like the mill cop with her is like, uh, someone's got to do it. And she's like, oh, yeah, you don't have a chance because, you know, obviously this cop is actually interested in, you know, talking to Darla because she's an attractive woman. He's not thinking about like, oh, maybe there's something wrong here with, uh, you know, this <laughs> trunk being opened and she's talking at the trunk. And uh, the cop just goes up to her and, you know, I think Darla actually says, if you'll be quiet, uh, you know, I'll I'll cut a hole in the the. Um, the bag and she does that and then she closes the trunk and the cop just starts hitting on her and she's like oh my food's ready bye you know and she pulls the money out of her you know blouse or whatever and, and gives it to the uh the fast food guy and she drives off and we see the cops one more time they drive by her and she just you know darla just waves at them you know and i'm just like it's interesting to me because it reminded me of the scene in Henry portrait a serial killer where Henry's getting rid of one of the bodies and it's the only time we see a cop car and the cops are completely unaware of what's going on <laughs> and we see that in this film as well the cops are unaware of what's going on everyone around is unaware of what's going on we we have multiple scenes uh motorcyclists just passing jenny by uh, a car passes barry and, and heather by no one wants to help you know everyone's just sort of like mind their own business as we do in neoliberal america these days and i i just found a, a sort of poignant scene that's the thing is this is something that actually the slasher has always played with which is the fact that you don't know what might be happening because we're conditioned to not look. Mm -hmm. We're conditioned to to not get involved. We we are uh, atomized and individualized to such an extent that uh, you you know you, you you we train ourselves to ignore the 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 systemic violence that exists all around us, uh, as that's the only way that we can get through the day. So no wonder when. 
you know, out the corner of your eye, you see what might be the figure of a of a terrified woman trying to escape a chainsaw wielding maniac. Uh, you just go, oh no, it's uh, someone else will deal with that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I think there's also like you know like that that critique of the police is extant in pretty much like every every horror movie that that has cops in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think like like bad and useless. <laughs> Right, and, and I think I think that critique, like even like, because, because obviously, like it would be ludicrous to suggest that like every every horror movie has a nascent, you know, anarcho-Marxist critique of of hierarchical centralized <laughs> law enforcement. But like I think I think there is like a deep cultural awareness that like if you're if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you are disabled, if you're you know uh, LGBT. You know, you do run a risk if you try to summon law enforcement to help you that they might just make the situation worse for you. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, like even even for people who ostensibly don't don't run into those dangers, like there are so many conditions that the police are just fundamentally unable to help you with. Right. Like if you're homeless, if you're just like like, you know, like this isn't Mayberry. Nobody's going to like call call or wave down a cop and be like, oh, I'm lost. You know, like that. Mm-hmm. that's a very antiquated idea. Right. And I think that, like, you know, you know, as John mentioned earlier, like horror, horror hyper focuses and hyper exaggerates things. And like the idea that, like, you know, police police really don't don't help too much anymore. Like their their function as like to serve has been kind of severed from the job description. Yeah. I mean, especially in America, if if, you know, if you have mental health difficulties that you have to deal with, the very worst thing that somebody could ever do if you're in the middle of a crisis is to call the police like that that's that's not that is not only not helping that's going to actively make everything far more far more dangerous because the odds are that the police uh will end up killing you um as we talked about with revolutionary left radio don't ever ever talk to the police <laughs> don't ever talk to the police we know I guess this leads us into the Darla character. We can talk a little yes. bit more about her uh, because, you know, we're getting to the dinner scene. You know, mm-hmm. they've got the pizza ready, getting ready for the dinner scene now. Uh, but Darla is very interesting in the, in the cop scene because she's so calm, cool and collected about how to deal with all of this. She just there's no worry. She's like, I can handle this. But uh, she's a very vulnerable character in this whole movie. Um you know, w- one other scene that stands out with her, and then I'll get your guys' take on her, is, um, you know, once they get back to the house and Vilma re-enters the picture and Renee Zellweger's like, oh, my God, Jenny is just like, oh, how is this happening? I'm back with this guy. These people are all together. This is like a whole family of psychos. Um, you know, Darla and Jenny have like a little girl talk scene. And... Jenny's just trying to get something out of her, and Darla says, "You know, I'll, I'll t- I shouldn't be telling you this, but you know the people that run the whole world and all that stuff that you hear about—it's all true." And Jenny's like, "You mean the government? No, they've been running it for like thousands of years." And Jenny's <laughs> just like sort of nodding her head, uh, but it's interesting because Jenny's like, "What's your name again?" And I, I think she says, oh, Darla. And they sort of smile at each other. And it's it's like it's definitely not a heartwarming moment, but it's it's just a very odd moment because, you know, Jenny is like trying to deal with this and like maybe trying to get Darla on her side. But you can also tell that Darla is very afraid of Vilmer. She's like when when Jenny mm-hmm. asks her, uh, what what do I do? And she's like, 
don't talk and just do what Vilmer says. Just always do what Vilmer says. I, I think it shows a lot about the Darla character. Um, she's a very sad character in all of this in a way, even though she's also a participant in the abuse that goes on. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to ask, what do you think, Cash? Uh, Darla, Darla is one of my favorite characters, especially in the context of the discussion we've been having, right, about systems of power and abuse. Because, uh, you know, and we'll get to the Illuminati, but like when uh, Rothman shows up, we, we get the, we get the scene where he's talking to Darla and he's like, he says something to the effect of like, I don't understand why you're with scum like Vilmer. I think he and, calls and, Vilmer a cripple, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and then like, you know, Darla looks right at Rothman and, and very angrily and very cold. And this line is delivered with, with just... You know, this is a perfect delivery. She's like, you know exactly why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And we never, I don't think we ever really find out what that is, what the underlying reason why, because Darla is very different from the rest of the Slaughter family. Mm-hmm. And so we, we get we get this impression that, like, you know, by by some cruel twist of fate, Darla's imprisoned here, too. Mm-hmm. That, like, her time in, in this is not, oh, she's not a willingly partic- willing participant of the Illuminati's game. That, that we we come to learn about later on. Well, it's weird too because like there's obviously like um, a sexual thing going on between her and and Vilmer. You know, I think there's a definite attraction there. But she also at, at one point she's like I, she can't take it anymore. Vilmer's abuse and, and she just takes off a high hill and just starts beating him with it repeatedly. <laughs> um, and it, it's just a very interesting character because it's almost like at, she's very much like the cook in the original in a lot of ways in that yeah. it's almost like she wants to help Jenny, but at the same time she doesn't. It's it's very odd. John, what are your thoughts on Darla? <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think this kind of obvious thing that maybe we're dancing around is is the notion of uh, of Stockholm syndrome, which is a bit of a sensationalist uh, idea, but actually makes a lot of sense. That I agree, I agree. Uh, but th- th- I mean, she is someone who who's who's victimized and and is abused, but is also uh, there is uh, she clearly has this. Uh, deeply complicated uh involved relationship and it's incredibly difficult to um to to kind of pick it apart and there's there's the the constant question of well why is she there uh and and her answer of you know exactly why i'm why i'm here um actually even if we don't know what the specific reason is suddenly you go oh yeah because she can't quite bring herself to leave she can't whether that's physically she's not allowed to or emotionally she's not able to kind of pull away from these people or something more likely a combination of both mm-hmm. um yeah we know exactly why she's there i mean like i, th- I think we can read darlo in the context of the rest of the women in this movie so we've got jenny jenny's mom and heather who are all in um abusive like relationships with the men in their lives and I think it's not a stretch to read Darla in the same context. Like, clearly, Vilmer's abusive. But then we have this this other layer of abuse with Rothman, too. And I think that line, at least to me, I read that as a suggestion that that Rothman has somehow trapped her in this situation. That, like, maybe, in, like, you know, like, we don't we don't know anything about that context. So it could be everything from, like, blackmail to, to whatever you want to put in there, depending on how you read the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. 
but like you know i think like you know jenny jenny's mom is also imprisoned right like jenny's mom is also staying in a relationship that ostensibly she should not be staying in and it's the same with jenny like uh, ostensibly jenny should find a way to to escape the clutches of her wicked stepfather (laughs) but like it's never quite as simple as that and i think (laughs) darla exists in that same context right it's not (laughs) it's not as easy as like okay like darla should just pack up her bags and leave right you know like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things interwoven and bound with the abuse that she has (laughs) to live through yeah i i almost feel like in ways darla is is sort of she's like jenny's mother figure through the whole ordeal Mm -hmm. whereas you know obviously the analog to vilmer is her stepfather and um it's it's interesting to me because we're we're getting into the dinner scene now and and right before the dinner scene there's a really interesting and telling scene where Jenny picks up a gun and you know Heather is on the floor she's just sort of given up you know the family is arguing with each other and she says everyone down on the ground I will shoot and Vilmer I think that's the moment where he's lost control of the situation uh, and he takes the gun, and it's one of the most bizarre scenes I've seen in a horror movie. And he just starts howling, you know. And I think he says like "Bayou" or some like he shouts some weird howl. And uh, he takes the gun from her and just goes completely wild. He starts shooting the ceiling near We, and then he starts choking uh, Darla. It, it's one of the moments where I, I feel really bad for Darla. I think Jenny even says like, you're going to kill her. And you know, it's the moment where Jenny starts coming out of her shell a little bit, but it's, she's not there quite yet. Yeah. Um, and I think that goes back into what we were talking about earlier with, um, uh, uh this idea of like male rage, like, <laughs> which becomes very directionless and doesn't have any um, specific target. And that's when it's at its most dangerous, right? Because uh, you don't know, you can't predict actually where it's going to turn its attention to. But that dinner scene compares really interestingly to the dinner scene in the original, right? Um, Where it's, where they've got a takeout pizza (laughs) on the table Mm -hmm. uh, and and the the, the house is is shot and framed in a similar way as as it is in the original. Uh, But everything about it is just, I don't know, that's, this is actually the point where the film started to lose me a little bit because a post dinner scene, we have the introduction of another character and perhaps the subplot that we have been dancing around in the course of this entire film, which is the Illuminati get involved. Well, um, well hey, but right before we get into the Illuminati, I just want to add one more thing on this. I, I, I know I'm, I'm like way too into this movie. Uh, I told you I will defend it to the death. The, the actual dinner scene itself is probably my favorite in the whole uh, Texas Chainsaw franchise, you know, because they build up to it so much. I mean, they have, you know, Darla and, and Vilmer, you know, sort of having their little romantic escapade. Uh, and then they have Leatherface, you know, getting the lipstick on, as we saw Jenny do at the beginning of the film. And mm-hmm. uh, then everyone is just sitting down at the table and Vilmer says... Uh, welcome to my world and everyone just starts screaming and and jenny i think that's the point where she snaps and it's it's one of the most effective points in the whole film for me because she she just 
I think Vilmer touches her face. And I, I think she's reminded of what her stepfather does to her. And she just says, no, no more. And she pushes him away and he looks like shocked. And she's like, enough is enough. You know, all this shit that, that you talk about the Illuminati and all this, it's all bullshit. Uh, I'm leaving. I'm going to walk out right now. And then Leatherface screams and she just looks at him and says, sit the fuck down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's one of the most effective scenes. And then, of course, Vilmer has one more trick up his sleeve. He gets out the gasoline and he attacks Heather with it. Um and that you see that vulnerability again with with Jenny, and she says she had nothing to do with this. It, it made me squirm a little bit. That scene, it's it's weird. We go from squirming to laughing to chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think um, I think like going going back to your comment about how um, Vilmer and Darla wind up being uh, Jenny's kind of like alternate bizarre world parents. Mm-hmm. I think like that that dinner scene is a really pivotal point for her character, right? Because, like, this movie can, I think, very effectively be read as Jenny learning learning how to face her abuse and, like, not necessarily, I don't want to say coming to terms with it, mm-hmm. but but finding a way to grow beyond it, right? Like, finding a place that for her represents something something more like healing, something more like resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kim Hankel is that, actually... Kim, I was going to say, Kim Hankel has actually said that the whole movie is about Jenny's transformation. And that's why Boom. in the dinner scene, she's <laughs> she's wearing a completely different outfit, too. It's it's a, yeah. a really beautiful outfit. She's all made up. Um, she's she's sort of like uh, I think Kim has described her as it's like a butterfly, you know, coming out of a cocoon. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I like that she says, uh, sit the fuck down to Leatherface, because it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen, and no one expected it. <laughs> right. And it works, too. Like, ugh. But once again, I imagine that's the moment that a lot of, like, fans, in inverted commas, are like, oh, no. Because, because that goes on, links back into the fact that the, the slasher killer has always been... Uh, a, a power fantasy move in many ways. Yeah, and he, he she just completely emasculates him in one line. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I shouldn't. You're right. I shouldn't be too sort of dismissive of the of the dinner scene. But we I, do have I, to get I, into I, the Illuminati now. <laughs> is it is it is it time? <laughs> I, I think it's time. I think it's time. Let's let's. Uh, we're on dangerous ground now, so this may well be the very final episode of the Horror Vanguards. Uh, if we yeah, get too, if to... we get too close to the truth, enter so Rothman. The Illuminati reptiles that, that run, <laughs> run the world from the center of the earth. Uh, well, in this film, it's through uh, Rothman who arrives. Uh, That's not a Rothschild reference, right? <laughs> Um, I mean, it's we're finding uncom- too much. It's uncomfortably close. Uh, <laughs> Do you know what it's really uncomfortably close to? Rothman, Mothman. Hello, people, <laughs> people wake up. <laughs> uh, I don't know after- what Kim Hankel knows, but it is powerful. <laughs> uh. I think that's a that's an inarguable case that you've made. Ash. That's <laughs> so. Yeah. What do we think about what do we think about Rothman? 
Ash, do you want to go first? Because I know I've, I've monopolized a lot of time on this episode. <laughs> oh no, you are you are our guest. Monop- yes. Monopolized away. Monopolize away. This is this is this is what our guests are for. Let's give us their expertise. <laughs> Well, it, I I kind of like this twist in it um, because I think it can be read multiple ways. So Rothman basically, you hear a a car honking, and and you know Darla looks out the window and the limo's coming up, and the next thing you see is Vilmer opens the door, and you have this guy in a nice suit with a chauffeur behind him, and it's Rothman, and he just walks in. And he insults Vilmer. Vilmer, you can tell Vilmer is actually, for the first time, really like, you know, he's he's in a subordinate role. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's a it's sort of a disturbing scene for me in some ways, uh, especially near the end of his his first appearance in the film. Uh, he, you know, basically says, "Fuck." This is appalling. This is, the, and he picks up the pizza off the ground, and he's, "What is this? What? Like, I wanted you to instill horror into people. This, this is a, this is an abomination." And you know, I'm pretty sure that that's what half the people who watched this movie were feeling like when they watched it, which I think yeah. may be the joke, um, because to me, Rothman can very easily be seen as um, a horror movie director, and it's the horror movie director coming in and saying. You fucked everything up. It's the horror movie director saying to the monster, you're doing a bad job. (laughs) And and I think Vilmer is like, damn, I I didn't do my job properly as the monster in this film. Um, Or at least that's how it it could be read. Um, I know Kim Henkel has said that he's less interested in whether Rothman actually works for the Illuminati. Um, He said that, you know, it could just as easily be that Rothman is some, like, ninth grade algebra teacher who on the weekends runs, like, some dumb cult. (laughs) Uh, uh, It's, it's, Henkel has said he's more interested in authority and role subordination when it comes to this character. And I think it's an interesting twist because, you know, for the first time you see the family is subordinate to someone else, you know. Yeah, 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 I mean... Oh, go on, go on. I, I was just going to say, I think this is an interesting attempt to do something which is actually quite common, which is when you're confronted with, like, the monster is that which stands outside of the limits of a kind of particular discursive field, right? <laughs> but we are incredibly familiar with um, uh, hierarchical structures which are forcibly imposed. So this is an attempt, uh, in in one way, you can read this as an attempt to make actually the, the, the slaughter family a little more mundane because somehow it does diminish them if you go oh it like they're just doing as they're told it's it's like it's like uh you know you know how it is when your boss who drives the limo calls you up and goes okay now i want you to try and induce another transcendental horror experience into these vulnerable young people and you're like okay but i i was i was gonna try and finish early on friday suddenly they become a little more i don't know they become a little more mundane yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because that threat of abuse also ties into Rothman. I mean, there's a whole bit where you see that he's into scarification, which I don't know what that's about. All I've heard is that Kim Henkel was reading volumes on scarification rituals, and he just wanted to put that in the film. But uh, he ends up, like, licking Jenny's face. And uh, yeah. then we have a Rocky Erickson song start playing in the background. And to me, that was like, I don't know. It's one of the moments in the film, uh, along with a few others, such as the um, 
Heather's death scene where her head is crushed by Vilmer immediately upon Rothman leaving, where I'm like, uh, this feels really misogynistic and uncomfortable. No, it, it, both of those scenes uh, are actually really difficult to watch, and 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 I think kind of underscore the, the 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 critique I've been trying to make here, which is that because of its tonal inconsistency, it's it's really difficult to stop what should be a critique or satire of the misogynistic violence inherent in the in the horror film form becoming just a reiteration of it, and instead of actually. Uh, criticizing something in a constructive way, you just end up perpetuating it. You end up re reinscribing and reenacting mm. the thing that I I, I I think that the film is trying to to go against. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting too because you know the Rothman character wants to be seen as this you know uh, intellectual or you know he's he's uh, he's sort of um, he's sophisticated um, even though he says you know fuck this is appalling you know he cusses a little bit and he licks jenny's face i mean even he is uh not above this sort of you know toxic masculinity that he you know doesn't want he he doesn't want to be seen that way but even he's indulging in it uh which well i think i think actually the this attempt at sophistication uh like elites are not above the above abuse right no no i agree 100 percent. epstein but i am saying i i think they want to portray this i think there are elites that want to portray the image that they're above it when that's simply not the case yeah that's 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 camouflage that's the camouflage (laughs) of hierarchy um and it's you know it's very well done but it doesn't take long before you go uh nope he's he is uh he is exactly like all of the other uh, misogynistic pieces of shit that we've come across in this film. <laughs> maybe this movie was inspired by Jeffrey Epstein. I didn't think of that before we recorded that, but m- maybe Kim Hankel knows something. <laughs> uh, about Mothman and about Jeffrey Epstein uh, and about the Illuminati. <laughs> oh, do not do not tell me that the Mothman is connected into all that Epstein shit. I would be so disappointed. <laughs> My high regard for the Mothman would be Sully. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I well, I won't say that. We don't want to like the Mothman cannot be cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and I think uh, um, I really I really like um, Henkel's kind of explanation that you know they're they're unconcerned fundamentally with what the quote unquote Illuminati is in this film, and I think that that's really salient too because I think. A lot of conspiratorial discourse is ultimately a little fruitless, right? Because from the perspective of the Slaughter family, right, like you don't need to be a government controlling global 10,000 year old secret society in order to control their lives. You need to be the guy who owns the local oil well, right? Like you do not need to go that far up the chain and amass that Mm -hmm. much power to have like virtually entire control over how a family like the or a family like the slaughters would live. And I think the introduction of this, this potential conspiracy theory, uh, muddies the water, like it almost, uh, in, in a way that, that can, could ruin the opening two thirds of the film. Because you're right, you don't need that. You don't need that to make the point that we're talking about. And conspiratorial thinking uh, 
and I do think Rothman's name is dangerously close to Rothschild and, and, <laughs> and getting back into uh, conspiratorial anti-Semitism, which is a pretty uh, uncomfortable area. I think it actually makes everything that this film is trying to do harder to make out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not surprised that lots of people who watched this for the first time when it was first released were like, what is going on? Well, I mean, the whole the whole idea of the Illuminati being, you know, the director and the horror movie audience, I like that interpretation, but it is one that I, I think you would have to think about it for a bit to come to that conclusion. So I see what you mean by it, it muddies the waters. Yeah, because it's... Uh, before we started recording, I compared this uh, to Cabin in the Woods. Uh, and I think if you read this as kind of like a proto-Cabin in the Woods, it, it makes a lot more sense than to, to, to read it as a kind of like straight horror film. But Cabin in the Woods was very careful about setting up its reveal of the kind of conspiracy from the get-go. And yeah, there are a few there are a few clues and hints that are put in at various points. Uh uh, there's 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 Illuminati uh, on the side of the the tow truck, for example. But I think it's done in such a way that the final kind of reveal, you don't go, ah, so that's what they were working to. You get, you kind of go, wait, what? No, hang on, w w wait, where did this come from? Um, but I also think that this, as a satire and critique of horror films, this is a lot more um, generous and a lot less cynical about horror films than than Cabin in the Woods is. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I like um, is the way that Rothman's introduction sort of changes the dynamic. Like, it's definitely a curveball. It's definitely way out of left field. But I, I like the things that happen after it because it really sort of uh, completely changes what one would expect out of a Texas Chainsaw dinner scene. I mean, after Rothman leaves, you have Vilmer cutting himself and saying why why and he's you know for the first time you see it all collapsing you know i mean this is a guy who has been losing it the whole film you know he's progressively yeah. degraded at one point he just hits we vilmer and kills him with a hammer uh just out of nowhere for no reason um and and that point where he starts self-mutilating um to me, it's it's like the the total de uh, degeneration of his character and Darla telling him to stop. Then it just it devolves into like a really weird, almost screaming orgy where you have like uh, the the Jenny character um, crawling away, uh, basically disarming Vilmer's uh, mechanical leg. And for some reason, Darla is just sitting on the couch. Just screaming and writhing around for no reason, and that sort of sums up uh, where the movie goes from here on out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cue the uh, the the best song in the soundtrack, uh, "Blue Moon at Dawn" by the Coffee Sergeants, uh, which I <laughs> I love that they use that in the chase scene. Uh, what did you guys think about the the chase where you know you have Jenny running out uh, at full speed. Vilmer is like, get her leather, get her. Uh, you know, he's trying to reclaim some sense of order to what's happening. And uh, Leatherface is chasing her and there's a car chase. It gets really wild. What did you guys think of that, that climatic chase? So, so for me, I kind of felt when I was watching the end of this, I really felt that it was kind of like a, you know, I'll say a tongue in cheek nod to the original Texas Chainsaw and how that ended. 
Mm, yeah, and definitely. Th this is this is that, but inverted and made hilarious spectacle, right? Like when Leatherface is like, like chainsaw attacking the side of an RV, like that is hilarious action movie shtick, you know? That's a homage, I think, too, to the second movie, because in yeah. the second movie they have the car chase scene. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then that that final that final moment too, where like. Le Leatherface is like, you know, just just kind of like do, doing doing what Leatherfaces want to do, and that's swinging the chainsaw wildly and kind of shout. But this time, mm -hmm. like, it's it's like a lament, mm -hmm. and yeah, not I the kind of like crazed Leatherface from the original. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So we have, you know, spoiler alert. Uh, you know, she gets in a, an RV with these this old couple. Uh, eventually, the, you know, Vilmer and Leatherface manage to wreck the RV. Uh, and, you know, I guess Jenny gets out of the RV, runs into the middle of the road. Vilmer and Leatherface are chasing her. And we see this helicopter, which has been hovering around during the chase. And it just whacks into Vilmer. <laughs> And mm -hmm. I don't know if the Illuminati sent that or if it was just there, but, uh, you know, Vilmer's dead and everything sort of just stops. And Leatherface looks at Jenny and Jenny looks at Leatherface and I can't tell what she was trying to communicate to him, but she just looks like, you know, what the fuck is going on? Uh, and then you hear the car again, the limo. And she gets into the limo with Rothman as Leatherface just stares at her and cries it's 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 one of the weirdest uh ways to end a texas chainsaw movie because you have you know leatherface is basically the most ineffective he has ever been in any of the movies as yep. you said a lament <laughs> yeah and the plane makes no sense outside of the context of of rothman being like uh, an, an illuminati guy and he summons an illuminati crop duster to take out vilmer like <laughs> Outside of that, read like, like you know, I know like earlier I was like giving symbolic weight to Vilmer's removal of Jenny's glasses, but like, I, I got I got nothing on on the uh, the um, oh, what what are those um, those trail things? Chemtrails, boom! I've got nothing on the uh, chemtrail plane taking out Vilmer. <laughs> yeah, the ending, the ending, like. As you say, it takes a very hard left turn when uh, Rothman gets introduced, and we just keep on going. Um, I mean, I like the mayhem of it. I have to be honest. I like how it just goes completely off the rails. I think that's how a Texas Chainsaw movie should be. <laughs> oh, I, I, I do. I do really appreciate how how like it it goes off the script in term. Or it, it goes kind of like it spirals out of control on on a screenwriting level and on an acting level and on a filmic level like the entire end of this is just like this frayed mess that's just coming undone yeah yeah it does it does start to fall apart um but as i say i do think there are some interesting things in this and i think as a as a satire and and, and critique of horror films it's trying to do something which uh it is uh is very kind of insightful, but I also think that tonally this film is just a mess. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it is a kind of a wildly swerving car that is like barreling between two lanes of mm -hmm. a, a really pointed satire and critique of, of a horror of misogyny and also this kind of involvement in it 
um, and, and perpetuation of it, which mm-hmm. I don't think we should we should overlook. Well, that's that's something I wanted to get into because one of the one of my favorite scenes in this is when Jenny finally gets in the limo and she she's scared at first because she sees it's Rothman, right? And he says, "No, don't don't worry, don't worry." Um, and then he says he gives this stupid spiel about you know I people like us we just we need more in our lives. I wanted this to be a transcendental experience, and she's just I mean at this point Renee Zellweger's expressions are, are priceless, and I love what she says to Rothman after this big spiel while he's reading some fancy French paper. I love the I love how she responds to his whole I was trying to make a spiritual experience for you because mm. she just says fuck you like no fuck you this is bullshit and uh I, to me it's like the defining moment for her in a lot of ways it's her saying you know I I really have had enough of this no more Yeah and I think that ties into something that's that's really interesting about horror generally which is like you know you can go through something that is and this is not just something that can happen in a fictional setting you can go through something that is incredibly hard and 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 terrifying and and traumatic and you can in retrospect look back and go all of these things were incredibly difficult but uh you know there there has been some growth you've realized certain things about yourself but also it's it's incredibly correct to go would it not have been so much better to not have to have dealt with all this shit in the first place <laughs> so when he comes off and offers this kind of justification for it it's really cathartic to see her just go you know what fuck you that isn't an excuse that isn't a reason <laughs> well i think it it's effective to me because i do think there's this mentality of like um what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and and this you know this big spiel that some people have about you know it's not just about overcoming your traumas it's about like maybe the trauma is good for you in a way i've i've had i've met people who kind of lean towards that and just to have a character straight up say no yeah, like yeah, yeah. everything you are are pushing on me everything you've put me through fuck you it, there is no higher meaning to this you know you're just an abuser it's yeah. it's that moment where she's really overcome uh just the way of thinking that the sort of patriarchy pushes upon people and also let's not forget that the 1990s was the birth of that most insidious of neoliberal discourses resilience mm-hmm. where where you're expected to to constantly be performing the overcoming of your own trauma why? Because that makes you a more productive, more, more, uh, a stronger neoliberal subject. And so that, you know, that that moment of refusal is is actually really important. I think in that context. Ash, what what do you think? So, so this is like this is this is like a gothic deep cut. But for that final for that final moment in the car, my first thought was. Like, oh, well, like, this, this is obviously in dialogue with the Burkean sublime, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah go right? And, like, and like so, so there's this idea in, in the Gothic that there's that, that the functional difference between terror and horror is that is that terror can, and, and through, through the experience of it, lift the soul and ultimately take you to a higher place. While horror is just kind of like this guttural, visceral thing that will lower you into like a, a bodily response, right? And Stephen King goes to echo this later on and has like the whole goal is to scare people. But if that fails, you gross them out. 
And I felt like this was like just just such a little like awesome because we have like this very astute man who's who's like you know like he is reading that fancy newspaper. He's trying to signal that he is he is learned and of a higher thing. And he's like, oh, I was trying to like use the Burkean sublime to raise your soul and like. <laughs> And then, and then, like the person who's experienced is like, just, just like, no, fuck you, like, fuck you, and fuck your analysis. Like, I loved that that moment at the end there. Well, I guess this leads us into uh, the final moment that we have to talk about because I, I guess apparently most people thought it was like a weird art house ending. Is uh, you know, Rothman says to her after she says "fuck you," he promptly says. Would you like to go to the police or a hospital? <laughs> and then it cuts to she's in the hospital. There's a policeman uh, speaking to her. We're going to figure it out this time. We're going to figure out. Th this seems to happen a lot. And she's not really <laughs> responding. And a, a guy in a gurney comes by. And there's a woman on the gurney. And she just stares at Renee Zellweger, Jenny. And Jenny stares back at her. And then, you know, the gurney is taken away and sort of dissolved to light uh this scene is very interesting because the three bit parts here are all people that were in the original texas chainsaw uh the policeman is played by john duggan or dugan um who played grandpa in the original the man pushing the gurney is franklin the wheelchair-bound and doomed character from the first film. I think he may be the third person to get killed. He's decapitated by Leatherface's chainsaw in the original. And then the woman on the gurney is none other than Sally Hardesty, uh, credited here as Anonymous, mm. uh, the final girl from the original. And she passes by Jenny, who just stares at her blankly as uh, you know the police officer says, What is going on here? Right, I, I do. I do love the cops one line where he's like, "Do you know them?" Well, she certainly does know them now, in a way. I mean, if we're right, to assume like, that they're like, the original characters, yeah. Right, and like I feel that that line is also kind of directed at us too. You know. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh well, like so. So we we have all of these like like the all these uh, effectively cameo roles of the original stars. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the cop is ostensibly speaking to Jenny because Jenny is very fixated on these people walking by. But, like, that's also, you know, like, we're supposed to get the in-joke here. We're supposed to get the, the the nods and the references and the Easter eggs, if you will, that are all these characters. And so, like, that cop is just kind of, like, pressing the issue a little bit more. Mm -hmm. John, yeah, what, what do you think of it? No, I'm I'm with Ash on this. and And I think if we read the film as... Uh, in some way implicating its own audience, then that line, I think, is addressed to the mm -hmm. people watching. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the, uh, undercut by that great joke of, yeah, we, we should... Wow, a lot of people seem to be getting murdered by a guy with a chainsaw around here. We should probably... <laughs> we should look in... You know what? This time we're going to look into it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> uh, and then we have the original cast wander past, and it's like, do you know them? Yes, of course. Of course we do. Um... So yeah, I think I think if this had kind of been stitched together in a way that was a bit more, I don't know, maybe maybe if there had been more foot footage for the director's cut, maybe if there hadn't been so many rewrites, maybe this would all be really satisfying as a as a as a satire and and kind of meta commentary on the slasher film itself. Do you know um, how long the theatrical was? How long? 
it's I think it's around 86 minutes. This is 70 Ooh, this, this is 7 minutes longer. They cut out 7 minutes of footage uh from this movie. So that's why I like that they restored the director's cut, which used yeah, to yeah. only be available in Canada for some reason. On DVD it was released <laughs> as the director's cut in Canada, but in the US you could never get a hold of it until the Shout Factory Blu-ray came out. Um but yeah, I think I think I don't know that 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 this was uh it was in two minds all the way through about what it was going to be and i think if it had the ending i think is very much in tune with this uh understanding of um of it as a kind of meta commentary as a as a as a piece of uh, uh kind of comment upon other media um but uh, it doesn't it doesn't cohere it doesn't hang together it doesn't it doesn't come together and leave you with the same kind of feeling as it could have done uh so i think ash's point about the ending is actually really really uh on point mm-hmm. what well, i was going to say thank you. I, I i think the whole cameo lot in ending the final shot i i think most people would be incapable of getting it because i mean it's not like you see the actors from texas chainsaw in a lot of other movies um yeah. although kind of i i i really dug the uh jenny and, and sally hardesty sort of staring at each other They're, it's poignant for me as a fan of the franchise but you know it, it comes off very weird because um I'm not sure that you're supposed to see it as satirical. Is this like a passing of the torch thing? What about the people who don't get the joke or the in reference? You know, it it, it does, I think, uh, really tie into what you're saying, John, about the sort of tonality of the film being very uneven. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's maybe the big problem with this. You know, it could have been a really it could have been a really smart and interesting exploration of like uh the limitations and problems of of the slasher film uh in its in its heyday of like the 70s to the early 90s but i think it's 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 running into its own limitations and it's not able to kind of deal with that in 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 a way that would allow it to become the thing that it's aiming for um i think it's it 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 is tonally so so wild because there are bits where uh it is funny but they're also in this often in the same moment there are bits which are deeply uh misogynistic and there are bits which are incredibly hard to watch but then there are also bits where you find out these characters are actually well-rounded and sympathetic mm-hmm. and and making a kind of bold and and distinctly feminist point about the nature of horror um and it, it's it's throwing all of that at the wall to see what would stick mm-hmm. do you think overall it's more of a misogynistic film than a film that's maybe commenting on the misogyny of, of horror films. I'm, I'm curious because I've gone back and forth on it because like I said, I, I actually do legitimately like this film and I've always read it as sort of um, critiquing patriarchy. But I, I mean, some of the ways that they portray patriarchal violence are so just really brutal and, and grotesque that it's, it undercuts it, I think. I mean, I think that's difficult, and I'd be interested to hear what Ash thinks about it. But uh, I mean, I I agree. I I read a lot of it as, especially the opening, what seven or eight minutes. Uh, immediately, I, I I sort of read it as as coming from a feminist point of view, as of trying to critique 
masculine power structures, patriarchal power structures, patriarchal violence and the and the threats of patriarchal violence where and all of the men in it are in this in this film are you know 90% of them 99% of them are both buffoonish and deeply dangerous um they're both uh, ineffectual and at the same time very threat threatening um but i i don't know there are moments in it where where you go that criticism has maybe vanished and what we're seeing is this is the spectacularization mm-hmm. of, of the same violence what do yeah, you think I, Ash? I, I almost forgot I, I think Jenny actually says that to Vilmer's character at one point like you're just pathetic yeah <laughs> you know so there is that buffoonish yeah. and dangerous at the same time but yeah Ash what do you think in, in closing I think it's kind of like a good thing to close it on right because this film is is trying to have a very complicated dialogue and i think you know necessarily when you have really complicated dialogues it's going you're going to fumble right because you're you're doing uncomfortable things in unexplored or underexplored i should say territory especially like using the medium of horror film is (laughs) interesting an interesting choice for this right because the subject matter would be more at home and like i don't know oscar bait drama or something like that Mm -hmm. but i definitely like I'm sympathetic to because a lot of the violence in this is extreme, but also like nowhere near as extreme, and and what we would see in like the rest of the horror landscape from like because this is like '95 already. Yeah, yeah. And so like the kind of horror we've seen, especially horror against women in cinema up to this point, is like, you know, like what does this movie do that's really infinitely worse than like what we lived through in '80s horror? Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of that is contextual next to the fact that this movie is very aware that you know like gender oppression exists on a societal level and that women are constantly facing you know mediated levels of violence Mm -hmm. that's permanent and so when we see it in this movie it's just so much louder you know like it's it's also not very slapstick at times like the violence against women in this is like very non-slapstick not not even like gory it's it feels very viscerally real yeah it it feels very like like the whole opening sequence with the stepdad like it's it's using like a lot of like the the filmic technology of the horror movie and how it's like cutting shots and how and how the father is kind of like you physically controlling her in the shot but like that that isn't a horror movie thing that's something that's you know probably happening somewhere in the world right now as we're recording it is deeply unsettlingly real yeah well, i mean e- even the part where you know vilmer is choking darla with his yeah you know mechanical lake i'm like Ugh, it's it's a bit much yeah and i think like you know like if that if this movie didn't have the context of being consciously and actively about the kind of abuse that that people can face i i don't know like i I don't know how we read the violence without that context right if that that makes any sense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well so do you guys think that this was a film worthy of of reevaluation i know like we said at the top this is one of the most hated horror movies of the 1990s, and yet it's also one of my favorites. Um, I know, I, were you get? What did you guys think when I suggested this? I want to get that out of you. <laughs> um, I think we were both a little bit like, uh, like at least like I, the initial reaction was like, oh, all right, let's do it, let's see what happens. 
Uh, Ash, Ash is, has much more uh, eclectic and interesting tastes in film than I do. Uh, so, so Ash was probably like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely into like, I, I love weird art house horror, which makes me also tangentially love like the bastard children failures of the greater like horror movie scene. So I was, I was ready for it, I guess. Uh, and I'll confess, I've not, I hadn't seen it before watching it for this episode, for this episode. And, um, <laughs> I I did not have high hopes or great expectations going in. Um, I I've been really pleasantly surprised. I can totally see why it's despised, but I also think that um, that that visceral hatred is maybe hugely overblown. Uh, and actually, there's there in here there are some interesting ideas, even if the whole thing, the 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 complete piece doesn't quite work. <laughs> Yeah, I I was going to add, I I think I'm a little bit more forgiving of it just because to me, the the Texas Chainsaw films, I mean, the the first four, I think they exist in this weird space where, like I said, it's almost like a variation on, on, on the same urban legend over and over again. And I kind of want the Chainsaw films to be completely batshit insane. Um, because even if you watch the third one, there's things in that that make no sense. I mean, they, they kill Ken Foray's survivalist character in the director's cut, uh, but then he ends up just having a Band-Aid on his head and he's alive. I mean, there's sort of this sort of nightmare logic that goes into these films. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's sort of part of what you want. Um, and I totally, I totally do think that there is there is there are things in here that are well worth picking up on and well worth thinking about. And in many ways, I think uh, there are things in this film, themes and issues that are being explored, which wouldn't be uh, explored in the same detail by kind of mainstream horror or until like mm-hmm. a lot of contemporary stuff. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah, I think. Um a good a good discussion we are reaching the two hour mark oh my goodness uh yeah i might i'm i'm gonna have to so go we, we and... do have to uh wrap the episode and maybe even release this as a two-parter it's been well, a bit of a monster but uh i think we've gotten some really interesting so. stuff I, I'm sorry if I took it way over time, but I... Oh, no, that's fine. I fucking love this movie, and I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> I, I, I legitimately like this, so I'm I'm very, very glad we did it. Hopefully, we'll uh, be able to collaborate more in the future. Oh, yeah, I'd love that. You know, I, I'm 100% here for, like, unironic, uh, uh, like, love of art pieces, and especially ones that other people despise. So, like, I am more than happy to have a, a two-hour conversation. I'd rather have a two-hour conversation about, you know, Texas Chainsaw, the next generation, than a two-hour conversation about Texas Chainsaw. So this has been fantastic. Yeah, no, this has been a lot of fun. We will, of course, uh, as I said at the top of the show, make sure there are links to, um, to your social media, to the show, uh, to ways that people can support the show, mm-hmm. um, uh, all in the show notes. Yes, and just to, just to walk us out really quickly, um, if you could... Just let our audience know where to find you, where to support your work, where what's the best way to support your work, rather. I have a Twitter. It's at Views Parallax, uh, Parallax Views on Podbean. And I also have a Parallax Views Patreon where I'm starting to release more bonus episodes. Um, most of my content I release for free because... 
you know, I feel like putting a lot of the interviews I do behind a paywall is cheating people. And I try to do interviews with people you don't hear from that often. So, you know, I, I just hope people will support the Patreon, support Parallax Views, uh, listen to the show. Uh, you can find it in, in the show notes, as John said. And um, real quick, I, I want to plug something. I've been working with... Um, a former child actor, Nathan Forrest Winters, uh, pretty closely now for the past few months to promote his documentary, uh, The Boy, which is about his experiences on the set of a movie called Clown House, where he was abused by the director, Victor Salva. And uh, Victor Salva went on to make Jeepers Creepers uh, and, and, and its sequels. Uh, he's still working in Hollywood despite having gone to jail for this abuse. And, you know, he's still had chances to work with kids potentially. Um, so I've been trying to promote that film. He'll be on Parallax Views soon. And I hope people really check out the documentary The Boy uh, by Connor Frazier and Nathan Forrest Winters. That's all I got to plug. <laughs> Yeah, we will definitely, um, once that's out, you know, once you do your episode, we'll definitely be retweeting that and promoting it from the Horror Vanguard account to get the word out. Yeah, 100%. Okay, awesome. All right, well, it has been great. It's been great having you on. This was a... This was a ride I did not expect when you when you first approached us with the idea for this film. This has been great. <laughs> I, th- I think you guys were like, why would anyone want to reevaluate the Texas Chainsaw Next Generation? <laughs> but, but It was so worth it, though. Yeah, I, I get it now. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay, stay spooky. spooky.